0: Welcome to Worldly, Vox's guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Walk into a store like Walmart, and you'll notice two things. Most of what you see is made in China, and most of it's incredibly cheap. That's because the U.S. and China have a close economic relationship built on decades of free trade between the two countries. But that all may be about to change. In the last week alone, President Trump has promised to put tariffs on tens of billions of dollars of Chinese-made goods. Beijing has promised to put tariffs on tens of billions of dollars of American-made goods, one what many people say is a full-on trade war with China. I just spent 10 days in China talking to business people, government officials, random people on the street across the country. They all said pretty much the same thing. China is ready to fight. But before we talk about what a trade war could look like, what a trade war actually means, what kind of weapons each side can use, Jen, let's talk about how we got here.
1: Yeah. So what we've seen in the past few weeks basically is this escalating tit-for-tat of slapping tariffs on each other's countries, right? The Trump administration said on June 15th that they were going to put this 25% tariff on $50 billion worth of Chinese goods. So then China got pissed off and immediately came back the same day and said that they're going to retaliate in equal scale and equal strength. So they come back with this huge kind of list of categories ranging from Soybeans, pork, chicken, sport utility vehicles, so SUVs, electric cars. And then, just this Monday, the Trump administration came back and said, okay, fine, China, if you do that, if you retaliate, then we'll retaliate back. And we're going to put an additional tariff on another $200 billion worth of Chinese goods. So it's this crazy, like, back and forth, essentially a game of chicken, but with tariffs, with essentially border taxes on each other's goods.
0: And tariffs, just to be clear for everyone, basically function as a tax. So things that are made in China suddenly might cost 25% more or 10% more. Things that are made in America being sold in China might cost Chinese customers 10 or 25% more. So just think of it as a tax. And it's
2: a tax paid by people who are actually buying the goods. So prices on these things go up, which means that various different things that you personally might purchase might get more expensive. And for two reasons, right? One, it's expensive to import things from China, just like literally Chinese made goods. And the second thing is if there are US tariffs on Chinese basic products, you know, resources and stuff like that, then anything manufactured with those products, even in the United States, might get more expensive. So basically the entire thing is a way of punishing consumers for countries being angry at each other. It's not really good for anybody.
1: And the idea is that if, you know, there are two goods on a shelf, right? There are two, I don't know, microwaves, let's say, and one is made in China and one is made in America. By making the Chinese ones more expensive, people will buy the American goods. And the idea conceptually is to boost American manufacturers. But by doing these actual tariffs the way Trump's doing it, a lot of American manufacturers are actually freaked out because they're like, no, this is not the way to do it. It's actually going to make things worse for us.
0: So we'll talk in a lot more detail about who these will impact, kind of what they may do. But it's important to understand the why, right? Like, if you have something that on its face seems like a bad idea, that seems like it can make things more expensive here, make things more expensive there, hurt farmers, or manufacturers, the obvious question is, why do it? And with Trump, who sees everything as a deal, the kind of logical thing to assume is this is just all a negotiating tactic, that he doesn't actually mean to do this. At some point, he'll he'll walk it back. But, Jen, you know, you were going through the timeline before. It seems like we're moving further away from this being a negotiating tactic and closer and closer to he's actually going to do
1: this. Right. I mean, you know, if you look at it on its face, you know, it's similar to the way he's kind of dealt with, say, North Korea, right? So, like, these kind of escalating threats on both sides and then forcing everyone to come to the tables. The problem is, like you said, like, this kind of rapid fire it's escalating and they're not actually sitting down and talking. Um so just recently several of the top trade officials in the Trump administration flew to Beijing to talk to the Chinese officials and try to work out a deal and they essentially came back and said, yeah, it didn't really go so well. We didn't really work anything out. And there's not a lot of optimism at least from that trade delegation that went when they came back that like they could actually reach a deal, which means if this is a negotiating tactic, there's no negotiation that seems to be coming out of it. So it seems we're getting closer and closer to actually putting these tariffs on, which means that's officially like a full-on trade war.
2: And it's also important to recognize that feeling like the United States is being cheated by its trade partners, and particularly its Asian trade partners, has been a feature of Donald Trump's public pronouncements for three decades. Yep. One of his first forays into politics was condemning Japanese industry and Japan for cheating the United States. Right. Back
1: in the day when everything was made in Japan.
2: Right. And now that China has been doing things, he's shifted. And, you know, you remember during the campaign, it was China, China, China over and over and over again. And so finally, it's been a while, took a long time coming since he became president. But it seems like he's shifting towards matching the policy with the rhetoric that you've been hearing from the president for a a really long time.
0: And, And one thing that was very striking on this trip, the Chinese government, in terms of how it talks, is the very literal opposite of Donald Trump. They don't use Twitter. They don't use words like, the U.S. is raping us. They are very cautious. Nearly every we spoke to on this trip, even people who only said how good the government was were off the record, meaning as journalists, we couldn't actually quote or use what they said. There was one exception, and it was at the Chinese foreign ministry, where they very much went on the record to say, we will not negotiate with a gun to our head. And it was striking to me, not just the language they used, because that was a Chinese official using a phrase that really resonates for an American audience, right? That sounds like American slang. But also, that was the one time the Chinese government go on the record. I think it gives you a sense of they're furious about this. They will not bend. And they feel not incorrectly like they are a superpower whose economy is massive. They are not a country that the United States can bully around. And they're not going to just roll over. I don't know if, you know, Zach, to your point, I don't know if Trump gets that, right? If you spend 30 years bashing Asia, there was a time when Asia was weak, right? Like you could bash China 30 years ago because they were not what China is now. But China now is very, very different, and it doesn't seem to me like that same kind of bullying works.
2: Also, he's developed this weird personal friendship with the Chinese president. Xi Jinping and him have talked a lot. Trump compliments him. He says he's great. He says he's doing good things for China. And so that, as far as I could tell, is part of why— Trump has been softer on China than you might have thought. It's his personal relationship with the Chinese leader and the ability of Xi to reassure him that, you know, we'll come to some kind of deal, we'll work on North Korea together, etc. But Uh,
1: they're not. They're not coming to the deal. They're not. Nothing's happening.
2: And so now there are these, as Jen said earlier, tit for tat slapping of sanctions. Well, (laughs) trade tariffs. Excuse me.
1: Uh, Yes. (laughs) Tit for tat slapping of tariffs. So beyond just a negotiating tactic, though, there are some very legitimate reasons why, you know, American manufacturers and the Trump administration, they have like legitimate beef with some of China's trade practices, right? Like there are serious barriers that they put up to trade specifically with respect to to U.S. businesses.
0: And it's so worth detailing. I'm so glad you teed up. And now we get to hear it in the words of friend of Donald Trump, Larry Kudlow, the chairman of the National Economic Council, speaking about China.
1: Blame China. Don't blame the administration. Don't blame Japan. Don't blame Europe. Blame China, because they have to put their best foot forward and act like a world power. Trade world, you've got to play by the rules.
0: So, Jen, you, you were...
1: playing <laughs> Canada.
0: Trade world, the most boring world on Westworld. <laughs> I'm on point, man. I'm hep to the culture. You you started going through the uh, (laughs) legitimate barriers, like the things that China does that do, in fact, Trump is right, make it harder for U.S. companies to operate. Talk through that. I mean, what are the things that they do?
1: Right. So when China comes into the U.S., if they want to buy an American business, that's fine, right? They can just do that and, you know, make money and sell products.
2: Uh, Unless it's vital for national security. There are some restrictions.
1: Yeah, there are a few restrictions. That's fair. But When the U.S. wants to come into China, basically regardless of what the business is, they have to have a Chinese partner that has half ownership. So there's a lot less flexibility, right? There's a lot more kind of government imposition, government control on this. And then there's another thing that a lot of, especially like high-tech manufacturers, Google, Facebook, those kinds of things as well, if they want to come into China and sell their products or their services, they have to essentially, by having these Chinese partners, they have to give over their, like, really vital trade secrets, right? The thing that makes them competitive on the market. And so, essentially, these Chinese businesses, which, you know, in China, it's very different than in the U.S. The government has a lot more fingers in businesses than they do here— So they can take that and go, oh, cool, now we have this awesome new technology. We can start our own Chinese business, and now we can compete against these American firms. So it leaves the U.S. a lot more vulnerable, and it puts us at a a significant disadvantage compared to the way China is allowed to operate in our country. And that's the kind of thing that the Trump administration and his advisors are are talking about, and they're trying to pressure through, you know, ideally, uh, they would get a a negotiation, they would get a deal— to try to get them to pull back some of these restrictions and to to loosen these kind of barriers to trade uh, by threatening these tariffs.
2: There There are also less official ones that are still hugely problematic. So we talk a lot about Russian hackers, but Chinese hackers steal tremendous amounts of intellectual property from U.S. corporations, and they do it constantly. Some people have described this as one of the greatest thefts in history. I don't know if I would go that far, but it speaks to the degree to which The theft of intellectual property, like the outright theft, not even just the extortion legally in the way that Jen was describing it, but the outright stealing of intellectual property uh, is a concern for U.S. businesses and a trade concern too. So it makes sense that you try to punish the Chinese government because it's wink, wink, nudge, nudge, allowing its people to take things that rightfully belong to the United States and produce value for its economy.
0: So like the day after I arrived in China, the Post had a huge story that should have been huger, except Trump tweets made it less huge, about China hacking the designs for a very high-tech Navy submarine. And so you have them stealing, theoretically, source code for companies. You have them for sure stealing plans that the U.S. military is developing, U.S. defense contractors. And there's even a third element that gets less discussed because it's sort of squishy and uncomfortable. China sends huge numbers of grad students to the United States, many of whom, Go to schools like Stanford, study computer science, go to work for some of these big companies. And there have been cases, and there are thought to be more cases yet to be found, of these Chinese grad students functioning effectively as spies, either deliberately, intentionally sending stuff back while they're here or grabbing as much as they can and moving back to China. Obviously, this is not to say that the majority, the bulk of Chinese students in the US are anything like that, obviously. But there are a few. As part of, Zach, the point you're making, it's a concerted effort to steal what you can. And Jen, to the point, you're making a concerted effort to buy what you can. And the end result is you have Chinese firms with a huge advantage illicitly, illicitly over American ones.
1: Right. And so those are the legitimate reasons that tech CEOs in Silicon Valley, big American manufacturers say, yeah, absolutely. These are big problems. We would really like China to stop doing this so that we can be more competitive, right? It's not fair, essentially. And, you know, Trump tweets this a lot, like, unfair trade. And he's got a point in that sense that, like, it isn't fair. And based on, you know— trade kind of norms and rules, like, you shouldn't be doing these kinds of things. We should, all, you know, trade world, you have to play by the rules, as Larry Kudlow said. However, all of that said, there are also some less legitimate reasons that the Trump administration and some people, in particular inside the Trump administration in in the trade world, have for hating China. So they have some very interesting ideas. So Peter Navarro, um, who is one of Trump's top trade advisors. He wrote this book called Death by China. Death by China. Right. Which
0: it's is it's a it's a subtle it's title. Very
1: subtle. And he also made this like accompanying documentary called, of course, Death by China. And the poster, like the cover for this documentary film, is literally like a map of the United States with a giant like military grade, like tactical knife stabbing down into the center of the country with, like, blood, and the knife says, made in China. So it's literally like China is stabbing us in the face with their trade policy.
2: And and the book alleges all sorts of weird things, right? Like China is shipping out explosive phones designed to kill you. They're poisoning kids, where there's, like, a grain of truth there. There was a problem with Chinese-exported powdered milk, but, like, in his telling of it, it's like China is intentionally attempting to destroy the United States through its sneaky and evil, like, grim fairy tales-type plots. It's, like, not even
1: remotely veiled racism, right? It's, like, they're sneaky, they're trying to kill you. And just to go back to the exploding phone, just so we're clear, we're not, like, being over the top here. There's literally an entire section in the book where he talks about how this person could be killed— if you have a Chinese-made cell phone in your front shirt pocket and it explodes and the shrapnel from the phone goes into your heart and chest and kills you. And he's literally warning you shouldn't buy Chinese-made phones because phone shrapnel will murder you. Can we actually watch the trailer right now?
2: If you put it in your mouth or the hands of a child, don't buy it from China.
0: They're not only ruining
1: our
0: economy, they're poisoning our children with the toys that we give We've got
2: uh, some planes coming out of China, and they're flying across the country, the world, towards the United States, and they're dropping pollution all over America, and it says polluting for profit. Oh, my God. Here's an Elmo cartoon that says Toxify Me, Elmo. Thomas the Tank Engine is lead toxic. Toys. He's yeah. bringing lead
1: paint toys into the United States. So yeah, it's very, very clear that it's like Chinese toys, Chinese made goods are going to pollute your country and murder your children. And
0: so you're probably thinking, wow, thank God this kind of movie wouldn't get an endorsement from someone who matters. And in fact, it did. So at the top of the page, you get in all caps, Death by China is right on. This important documentary depicts our problem with China, with facts, figures, and insight. I urge you to see it. Donald Trump. So you have Donald Trump pre-being President Donald Trump, endorsing what is by any measure a batshit crazy film, then flash forward to when Donald Trump becomes President Donald Trump, he brings Peter Navarro into the White House. And our colleague Zishan Alim had done a piece some months ago about the fights within the White House between Peter Navarro on the one side being super anti-China, more centrist people like Gary Cohn, who at that point was a major economic official who was less hawkish on China, and Peter Navarro at the time seemed kind of on the outs. That is not the case now. Now, Peter Navarro is very much on the ascent. So the view of a person who believes that China has a dagger poised to strike at the chest of the United States is now making U.S. policy towards China.
1: There there are people even in the administration who are concerned that this approach, this declaring an all-out trade war, is maybe not the best way of going about dealing with this.
0: I think that's exactly right. And after the break, we're going to talk about the possible flaws to that approach and the dangers it might have for American companies, American farmers, and American customers. Vox has a show on Netflix. We've been singing its praises for a few weeks now. It's called Explained, and every episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. This week, that topic is the stock market. I think you'll love it. It explores the questions of how does the stock market work, What does it actually measure? It explains why, even though the average family's net worth hasn't recovered from the Great Recession, the stock market itself is booming. It explains the difference between the stock market and the health of the economy. And it features a lemonade stand. Really, literally, a lemonade stand. It's amazing. So go find out on Netflix when you get home tonight. You can search for Vox or go straight to netflix.com slash explained. Whether or not these... Tariffs have justification, whether or not China is doing bad things. There are critics, and those critics are not simply Democrats. They're not simply kind of disgruntled people in the White House who lost out on the debate. They're Republicans. There was a hearing this week where the new Mr. Charisma, Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, was on the Hill trying to defend the tariffs. And the people who are bashing him the hardest were not Democrats. They were Republicans because the people being hurt initially are farmers. China is the biggest market for sexy things like soybeans, for things like pork. And Only so, you
2: could call soybeans sexy in a, in a very deadpan voice.
0: If you're a vegetarian, you don't have many options. <laughs> That's true. I... <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> but he's up there to, trying to defend these things. And you're hearing Republican senators like John Thune, where his state depends on farming, depends on exports, saying, with every passing day, the United States loses market share to other countries. Charles Grassley, another Republican from Iowa. We watch the soybean market start to collapse because of all this. So you've got Republican senators saying... This is a really, really dangerous thing. And on this China trip, I saw kind of the inverse of this. I saw why it's dangerous from the Chinese point of view. JT.com is a massive e-commerce company in China. Think of Amazon, but in some ways bigger in terms of the Chinese market. And when we visited, we were talking to them about what happens if tariffs go into place. They were saying there are some things that their customers want the Made in America slogan. So some wine, baby products, and there are certain things they thought where Chinese customers would pay a premium. So if American-made costs more than European-made, people would still buy it. But then they sort of did the dramatic pause, and they said the vast bulk of things that are bought from the U.S., Europe makes too. And so if their customer sees a European-made one that's cheap, an American-made one that's now 10% more, 15% more, people are going to buy the European one. So U.S. point of view, farmers are getting fucked. Chinese point of view, they could buy this stuff cheaper. The end result is U.S. companies, U.S. farmers, this is bad. This is really bad.
1: Right, and just recently two of America's largest business lobbying groups, so the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable. Um, So they said uh, this past Friday that a trade war with China would harm U.S. manufacturers, farmers, and consumers. They literally came out and said, this is not the right approach. And again, these are the same people who are saying, like, yeah, there are serious, like, trade barriers with China, and we would love for China to, to remove some of these barriers and to make it, you know, a more level playing field when it comes to trade, But they're like, this is literally not the way to do that because it's going to hurt us. So when you have the leaders of the two largest business lobbying groups who represent all sorts of sectors of American business coming out and saying, like, seriously, don't do this. Not this way. This is going to hurt us. It's kind of amazing that you still hear Trump and and his advisors saying, well, yeah, we're still going to do this, right? That you still hear them making these threats.
0: Exactly. You've written a lot about the people who do lose out on this. I mean- we shouldn't just say this is all wonderful for everyone because there are American manufacturers who have moved to jobs to China, and there are Americans who have lost jobs, and there are Americans who feel like free trade has really screwed them. Bernie Sanders hit on that a little bit and, and found kind of a political base among those people. Donald Trump, as you've written, kind of found that, and, and it's been key to his rise. And it's just very interesting to me that, you know, maybe you could talk about this a little bit more, the political impact, even if it's for a small group. When a bigger part of the country sees that small group and thinks, those are fellow Americans and they are suffering because of this.
2: Yeah, there's really good research, uh, mostly spearheaded by an economist at I believe MIT, David Otter, and his work shows that China's entry into the global market as a manufacturing power has led to a significant decline in jobs, particularly, again, in manufacturing in the United States, and it doesn't really make any sense that there could have been any other factor that caused these job losses. It's because of China's rise in problems. The problem, when you talk to Otter and some of his co-authors, they say it's it, you can't make it come back. You can't tariff a return of the U.S. steel industry. You can't tariff a return of U.S. toy manufacturing when it was replaced by China. Now that it's moved to the developing world and to China specifically, it's— It's kind of over, right? And you have to figure out what to do with the fact that this policy had real costs, even when it came with real benefits, which is another thing that these people say if you ask them. So they don't think that you can fix this, but politically speaking, Yoki, to your point— There are people who have lost their jobs as a result and can say, fairly, I lost my job as a result of trade to China. Not only that, but there's good research that shows that when you talk about trade with foreign countries, particularly certain sets of countries populated by certain kinds of people, you can really use trade as a mobilizing force for latent xenophobia in the electorate.
0: And so you have Trump taking something that is stunningly complicated, and with the nuanced thinking and nuanced talk that we've come to know and love from our president— And it's not something that he really tries to hide his belief.
2: Yeah, he was uh, in April on this New York local talk show called Bernie and Sid, because of course that's what it's called. And uh, one of the hosts, Sid, asked him about a trade war with China. Trump talks about, you know, the harms of trade with China for a little bit. And then he says, I'm not saying there won't be a little pain, but the market's gone up 40%, 42%. So we might lose a little bit of it. But we're going to have a much stronger country when we're finished. Listening to this, it reminds me a lot, and I'm curious as whether you two agree, it reminds me a lot of the way that he talked about North Korea prior to the current detente last year in the middle of the threats. It's like, you know— Might hurt a little, but we're going to win and we got to do this and we're winning and we're the best. And so it could, you know, who's to say with Trump? It could end up backing off and striking a deal or we could end up getting into a seriously damaging trade war.
1: Right. You know, talking just kind of blase like, oh, we might have to go to war. We'll see. We're just like literally like millions of lives at risk and, you know not necessarily millions of you know lives at risk of being killed but there are millions of people's you know livelihoods at risk I- in this trade war um and he's describing it eh that might be a little pain you know a little bit of pain the little bit of pain you have literally like the US Chamber of Commerce going yeah it, there's going to be more than a little pain please don't do this so again you have trump just kind of you know maybe he does understand the stakes and that's just the way he talks right he is very good salesman and saying like, yeah, there's going to be a little bit of pain. I mean, that is a way of just saying like, don't worry, it's going to be okay. And he's selling this policy. But at the same time, it's like, are you really being that blasé about this massive, like potentially damaging policy that you're embarking on?
0: This is one of the things that Worldly will be covering way into the future, kind of like the North Korea talks, kind of like the mess with Iran. Normally, this is where we would transition to elsewhere and talk about something different from the main story. And we're going to do that here, but in a slightly different way. So, I want to just take a second and speak personally and very much from the heart. Worldly came about some 50-something episodes ago because Jen and Zach and I sat in the Vox newsroom. We would joke around all day talking about foreign policy, and we thought if we could capture that, it would be a different kind of podcast, that foreign policy podcasts tend to be boring and somber, and if we can get in every time Zach tells a joke, and every time Jen swears, and every time Zach tells another joke, and every time I swear, and every time Zach burps, and we try to capture all of (laughs) that— beautiful, beautiful noise, we can make something really special. And we have. I mean, Worldly has found a mass audience. There's a community around the show that emails and tweets. And it's a really beautiful thing. Making the show, helping to create the show has been one of the highlights of my professional life. The kind of friendships it's created with Zach, with Jen, with Bird, our our brilliant producer, Jillian, another of our brilliant producer and engineers. That's a point of one of the personal highlights of my life, which makes it very hard to say this is my last episode. And I'm trying very hard to ignore the dust in my room that's clearly hurting my eyes.
1: Somebody's clearly cutting onions somewhere.
0: I want to be back covering the story. I want to be writing about it and not editing about it. And so I'm going to do that. I'm going to be leaving as of this week. This will be the last time I'm on the last episode I do. And maybe we can bring
1: you back as a guest, a yes, special guest. we absolutely can. And also, we never should have let you go on that China reporting trip, because Yochili has the reporting bug he always has. I don't know if a lot of you know, he used to be the uh, Baghdad bureau chief of the Wall Street Journal during the Iraq War. He has been shot at. He has been in the middle of the, like, literal shit of war and reporting. This guy has serious reporting chops. So he's going to go back and do that, which will make the world of journalism much more amazing and better, uh... It sucks for us, but... Yeah, it yeah.
2: does. This podcast would not exist in any way, shape, or form without Yoki's genius and all the work that he's put in behind the scenes. It has been an honor making the show with him, and we are going to miss him tremendously. And I was completely serious about you coming on as a guest the next time within, I don't know, like a week after leaving when you break <laughs> some major story. Yeah. He'll be breaking yeah. all this major
1: news. We'll be like, I don't know. We got to bring on this really like cool reporter named y- Yachi Driesen, I think is it. it's pronounced Yachi. Let's have a no, on the show. No, no, it's Yoshi. Yes. Yoshi yes, Driesen.
0: The onions, man, the onions. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: I'm trying hard to, to really keep it together. And, I do just want to say, and it really is from the heart, to Ezra Klein and Alison Rocky on the Vox.com site who kind of believed in the idea from the beginning, uh, to Bird and Jillian, who are wonderful to work with and and who are brilliant, and to Zach and Jen, who you're both two of my closest friends, not just here, but outside of work. And it's been an honor. It's been a pleasure. And I'm really, really excited to see what both of you do when Worldly goes forward. I hate saying goodbyes because I get really sappy. There's a Hebrew word that I much prefer, liitraot, which means until next time. So rather than say goodbye, I'll say lehitroit. We hope that you like what you've been hearing. We hope that you've loved the show. Find us, subscribe, rate, review. Listen to what worldly evolves into going forward and for me to all of you, thank you and lehitroit.